This is Farah, and you're listening to the Beef for Bacchus podcast, where we talk about wine stories from the Levant, Eastern Mediterranean, and the Caucasus. Before I get into today's episode, I just want to tell you guys a few things. This is the last pre-corona recording that I have. Going forward, I'm only going to be doing just a drop episodes. I considered doing remote episodes with wineries, you know, via Zoom or the phone or whatnot, but I don't think it's fair. Every winery I've spoken to up until now has had the chance to tell their story under somewhat normal circumstances. You know, things are always a bit weird here in Lebanon. But right now, I don't think it would be fair considering the entire world is on lockdown, things are not normal. I don't want that to overshadow a story that we would normally be talking about. I feel like no matter who I talk to right now, we're not going to be able to see past a pandemic. So long-form episodes will be on hold. And they'll come back once life kind of returns to normal. The podcast will stay active. It'll just be shorter episodes every week instead. In parallel, I'm doing a lot of things on Instagram, like Instagram Lives with people who've been on the podcast, but also people who haven't, like Joe Asad Touma. He's the winemaker at Chateau Saint-Thomas. I've also been doing a few virtual sessions of my History of Lebanese Wine class. I'm doing another group one this Saturday, but it's fully booked. I will probably be doing another one in a week or two, so please follow on Instagram so that you know when there are new events coming up. Another thing that I'm working on is something called Started from the Bottle. Started from the Bottle is going to be a series of Zoom panels, or panels on Zoom, we talk about things that are wine adjacent. So maybe it's design, maybe it's journalism, maybe it's hospitality. They're industries that overlap with wine, but they're not necessarily going to be a story about a winery. I'm trying to bring in the other players that also affect this industry, and we can have an open conversation about where they're at, what's happening, what are the moves going forward, how is this industry going to be affected, and you can all be part of that. All you have to do is register, and I will send you the link, and you sign in, and we'll do a Q&A at the end of the panel. And the first one is next week. More information on that will be found on the Be For Bacchus website, and on Instagram, and on Facebook. You know where to go. Lastly, before we get to the episode, I'm sorry, lots to say today. We are on Patreon. For those of you who don't know what Patreon is, it's a website where you can make donations to creators so that they can keep making this content for you. There are different tiers depending on the level of your donation, and sometimes you get some stuff back. So check out our page to see the different tiers on patreon.com slash And I want to send out a big fat shout out to Alex Ayrani, our first Patreon patron. Thank you, Alex. And yes, I do laugh to myself whenever I say we or our and I talk about Beef or Bacchus as if it's a group when it's really just me doing this. But I'd like to imagine that Beef or Bacchus is bigger than just myself. So there you have it. Shall we get to today's episode? I think we shall. Today we're talking to Joe Saade about Terjois, a winery located in the West Bacca Valley. If you go back to episode 15, the one that was right before this one, you'll get a quick intro to the geology of the Beka, and this is relevant to the vineyards of Terjois in specific. Why? The vineyards are on top of the meeting point of three tectonic plates, and they're nestled among three mountain ranges. I talk more about that in that episode. You can go back and listen to it. It's less than eight minutes. Please. A fun fact is that Joe also has a wine blog. I don't think enough people know about this, and he hasn't really been updating it anymore, but that's a shame because it's a treasure trove. There's so many cool nuggets in there, and I really encourage you to check it out. I'm going to leave the link in the show notes so that you can read up on some of the things that Joe is sharing. So Joe's story is a multi-layered one, and we're going to go through those layers today but let's take it from the top. Lebanon is really where three continents have joined and our vineyard just happens to be right on top the, the fault where three tectonic plates have joined. So we have subsoil from three continents. Not that it affects the wine. We don't know, it's probably too deep into the ground. But the story is 
this is where Europe, Africa, and Asia have joined. And this is not only in very general terms, but it's also specifically where our vineyard happens to be. This is what probably makes the Beka Valley so special for wine. This is why for uh, thousands of years, uh, grapes have been grown there and uh, wine made out of this place. And this is probably part of the story why Eastern Mediterranean and the Caucasus, which you are covering, uh, is where wine started. It just so happens that the forces of nature have played into this area in such a way that made it, I wouldn't say ideal, but I'd say optimal for good wine. Okay, there are other wines in other places in the world that will taste different, sure. But there, there's, a, there's a style and a characteristic of this part of the world where wine started thousands of years ago. And we're trying to take maximum advantage of this and to put it forward as much as possible because this is the terroir of Lebanon. There are micro terroirs of very different nature, sure. But overall, this combination of freshness and maturity is what makes it so different. I know in regular life, we use weather and climate interchangeably. But there is a slight difference. Weather refers to short-term changes, whereas climate is an average of longer periods. In wine, you have different classifications of climate based on temperature and precipitation. Bordeaux, for example, is a maritime climate because of the rivers and ocean currents. Those influence the temperature and humidity of the region. You can also have a Mediterranean and a continental climate. Technically, as a country, Lebanon has a Mediterranean climate, so wet winters and hot summers. This seems obvious, right, since we're on the Eastern Mediterranean? But there are pockets due to our topography that allow for microclimates, mainly because of our mountain ranges. According to studies done by Fabrice Guiberto, who is the winemaker at Chateau Quefreya, another winery in the West Baca, the microclimate of the West Baca is closest to a continental climate. Continental climates have big shifts in temperature, and they tend to be inland, away from bodies of water that can affect the overall temperature of the area. The West Baca has the sunniest days and the coolest nights, and this combination of sun and snow gives freshness and maturity. The sun gives maturity, and the snow gives the freshness. And Joe says that these two characteristics are what make wines of Lebanon so unique. On the Terjois property, there's a teepee marking the vertex of the three tectonic plates. Now, I said property on purpose because technically, Terjois uses their neighbor's facility to actually make the wine. This is a common practice here in Lebanon, and Joe's neighbor is his friend, Georges Naim of Chateau Canafar. So Terjois is a winery in that they make wine. It's just that the actual winemaking part is next door. And if you want to know more about Chateau Canafar, check out episode 7. You know that I started my winery and my wine business out of my friendship with George Naim. Can we talk about that a bit? Sure, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we, of course, uh, George and I uh, are old friends and we were neighbors in Dubai and we used to go walking every day. Uh, for an hour or an hour and a half and we were talking about anything and then one day we started talking about agriculture in the Beka because he's from the Beka I'm not mm-hmm. one day look Joe I have a small vineyard and I'd like to try to make wine I said hey I'm interested let's let me be involved in that and this is how it all started it started talking about a little vineyard he had which was Cabernet Sauvignon 30 years old and uh, we started playing around and I got into it and we started saying, okay, let's do it as a joint hobby. Then the joint hobby being successful, the wines we, he was making were interesting. So we said, hey, why don't we build a small winery and produce wines? You produce your wine, I produce mine. Mm-hmm. I don't have any vineyards. He said, start looking for, you know, I was in advertising. I had been in advertising all my career since I graduated. And I had sold my agency to a multinational back in 2003. I wasn't looking for, uh, for something to fill up my, my time. I was mm-hmm. still 50 uh, something 
versus 52. So it's okay. Uh, but to me, the idea of trying to do something in Lebanon, out of Lebanon, I left Lebanon in 75 when the war started and did not come back since after I sold the agency. So this is where I said maybe, you know, there's a God gift here in Lebanon and uh, the Lebanese wine, I, I was interested in wine, I'll tell you later how I got interested in wine, it's a nice story, it's because of Saddam Hussein. Uh, <laughs> so I, I got into wine and I was frustrated by Lebanese wine back in the 90s. Why? They weren't good enough, to, it, they could be so much better. The big boys, Xara and Kefraya, although uh, Kefraya was trying with Condem to do something special, and they were succeeding to, to a large extent, but it wasn't any bottle of Lebanese wine you take is going to be good. No, in mm -hmm. fact, most of them were undrinkable in those days. What I do say you think they were lacking? They were not lacking. They were over-extracted, over-matured grapes, uh, made just to create volume. Uh, and low price. Uh, so they weren't really, nobody was really trying because Lebanon is so small that if you do something special, okay, you'll probably make a few thousand bottles. It's not going to make a noise anywhere in the world. Probably this is the thinking of the big boys of Xara of Kifraya. But there was one exception, and this exception is to me the big icon that leads my thinking, and that's Chateau Musard. Mm -hmm. Chateau Musard is wow. Chateau Musard have done it exactly right. They have a wine which is iconic, and it's iconic because it is memorable, it is distinctive, it's a taste that's been consistent for the last 50 years. They knew exactly what they were doing because, you, do you know the story of the Hochard family? You know how Serge went to France to be trained by uh, the, the Barton, and they told him how to do it and what to do. They told him to include Sanso because it is what will, will give you elegance you, uh, and Cabernet will give you the structure and the, the muscles, and, you know. And he put it together and he did not detract from that line yeah. and make wines for long, you know, long aging. And these guys were the kings of Bordeaux, the Bartons were very big, they had four or five different chateaus in Bordeaux. They knew exactly, they trained Serge to do exactly the right thing because his father, Gaston, had been a friend with uh, Ronald Barton. And that's why he called uh, Serge's brother, Ronald. Uh, yeah. But, and they told him, you know, you do it, you sell it out of London because London was the hub for wine. And not only did he listen very well to that, but he went in 79 to the, you know, you know the story. And uh, everywhere you go, first in London, any restaurant in London has Chateau Musard. And I've been going around the world because I did the, the, o, the masters of the OEV. Uh, so they take you to um, multiple countries. And wherever I go, when I say I'm Lebanese, they would say, oh, Chateau Musard. Mm -hmm. Same. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Lots of people would say, yeah, it's got high volatile acidity or uh, whatever. But you can't say it's not distinctive. It is distinctive. It has placed Lebanon on the worldwide map. And I absolutely give full credit. In fact, one of the blogs I wrote was a tribute to Serge Hosher saying this is the Steve Jobs of Lebanon. And he, I really believe he is. So. That's yeah, I don't think they get enough credit for what they've done. No. Although Lebanese wine was still finding itself up until the early 2000s, Chateau Mouzard set the standard for Lebanese wine across the world by winning over international wine critics in the 70s. So, during the Lebanese Civil War. Sadly, though, the contribution that they've made to the Lebanese wine industry goes unnoticed locally. For more on Chateau Mouzard, check out episode 9. And as a reminder for those of you who are new to the pod, OIV is the International Organization of Vine and Wine. They offer a master's program that sends you to a bunch of different wine regions, and the organization itself is where you go for the hard facts and figures about the wine world. 
So it's a pretty great place to be molded as a future wine person. So the three pillars of my involvement in wine and the reason why I got so uh, passionate about it, or I'll say later why passionate with a plan, uh, is the three pillars are first Saddam Hussein and the Gulf War in 1990, then Procter & Gamble, who was my client and are really the world masters in marketing, uh, consumer product marketing, and the third is the OIV, where, you know, I uh, joined them and I entered into the Masters of Wine, which takes you around the world and, you know, got me really into the wine. So these are the three reasons. So I, why Saddam? Well, I had started my ad agency called Gray in 1986 with a partner and another partner joined us in 1987. And we were still, you know, trying to grow, trying to become big. It was not easy in those days. We had started, we had done right things. We had a few good clients and, uh, and then the Gulf War started. Now, the agency we had had four offices in 1990. We had uh, Saudi Arabia, we had Kuwait, we had Lebanon and we had Cyprus where our head office was. The only profitable agency was Kuwait. And Kuwait was the only place where we had money in the bank. The other three offices, we had loans from banks. This was the situation. And then in 1990, when Saddam uh, went into Kuwait, Kuwait stopped existing, our agency stopped existing, our money stopped existing. And uh, having, been, uh, having been in the business only four years, we were not big enough and solid enough to, we had loans. We had loans to the bank, we owed money to the media, and, uh, you know, uh, we owed in those days a million dollars back in 1990, so 30 years ago. It was ago. a chunk. We owed a million dollars to, mostly to Antoine Chouery, to the group, uh, mm -hmm. media group that he represented, and we owed half a million to the bank, to our bank. Now, my partner said, oh, we have to close the business, uh, I said, I'll talk to Antoine and I'll talk to the bank and let me see what happens. I went, I have to say this to give full credit to Antoine Schrady. So I went to Antoine and I said, Antoine, we owe you a million dollars. We don't have it. He said, Joe, have I ever asked you for money? You'll pay me when you have it. And I will not ask for it. Then, you know, I went back to the guys and said, oh, wow, God bless Antoine. God bless his soul now. But uh, so that allowed us, that allowed the bank to be more patient with us. And, but that wasn't enough. This was in October. November, we were still, we had fired most of our staff. We, we didn't know what to do. The Gulf War had stopped all advertising in the, mm -hmm. in the region. And then the magic phone call happens. The phone rings in Cyprus. I take the phone. It was, God bless his soul, Nadir Sultan, who was the CEO of Kuwait Petroleum. And Nadir Sultan says, Joe, I'm in charge of communication with the Kuwait government in exile. I want you to come to London, open an office and handle all the communications of the Kuwait government in exile. Out of nowhere? Not like... out of nowhere. He was my client in Kuwait. We were handling Q8 and we were handling. Mm -hmm. He knew us. He liked us. He, likes our, he liked our approach and our creativity. So he said... Joe, uh, I, want to deal with, I don't want to deal with the big boys of London. They don't understand what we're talking about. You guys know Kuwait. You've been there. You yeah. understand it. We know you. I trust you. Come. So the next day, me and my partner, God bless his soul, Tony Khan, went to London and we met with Nadir. And Nadir said, yeah, okay. We want to run campaigns all over the world, in the US, in Germany, France, Italy, all over. And we want you to do it, you know, under our control. I said, fine. So find an office. So we went in one day, registered the company. We took, uh, you know, it was a shelf company. We bought it. We got it. Looked for an office. Found friends of ours who were in media, who had a little office in the east end of London, not far from the courts. Okay, so we took a small office there. And it so happens that in that building was a wine bar at the bottom of the ground floor. And the wine bar became our locale. So this is where we're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> every day. And that wine bar, owned by a beautiful guy called uh, David, 
uh, an Englishman who used to go to France every summer with his car and fill up his trunk with wines and come. He had a great wine list at great prices. And this is where I really started to understand French wines, to try to understand the difference between a Margot and a Poyac, a Poyac and a Saint-Estef, etc. So I was there drinking wine every day, you know, not in excess, but... Uh, Getting more wine. and more into it. And being in London, it's very important. Being in London, London is the place, the only place in the world where you can find all the books you want about wine. And this is where I started, because I started getting interested in wine, so I started going and buying wine. And this is a book I bought in London then. Emile Penot, The Taste of Wine. This is the most important book in winemaking, not only in winemaking, but in wine enjoyment. This explains to you, okay, then I got the original. This was a translation into English, but I then later got the, the original in French and It's, this is what really got me into wine. Peno, thanks to London, thanks to uh, Nadir Sultan, thanks to Saddam Hussein. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so this was, this was the story of the first pillar. Okay, then everything went well. We did so much business in, in you know, the end of the Gulf War and after for the liberation and all mm -hmm. this. Not only did we pay back the million dollars to Antoine Chouet, not only did we pay, repay the, the, the loan to the bank, and then brand, we took a new office in Beirut, an old house in Beit Meri, which we turned into a beautiful thing with a huge statue by uh, a small Lebanese sculptor. So we had basically a, a seven meter high statue of a Phoenician woman holding her hands up and holding a piece of cloth because This was the, the Phoenician traders selling or... The purple. The purple. Yeah. yeah. So, and we had it at the entrance of the, the old house where the agency became. I mean, then it was like a new phase. Is the sculpture the still there? No, we, we moved. They moved after we sold, they moved the office. The Basmus brothers. Yes, Basmus, yes. Yeah. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. I got to tell you guys about the Basmus brothers. So they were three famous sculptors of the 1920s from the village of Rashana, which is about an hour north of Beirut by the Madfun checkpoint. Their father was a priest and he used to illustrate Bibles with a feather reed. And his sons, Michel, Alfred and Yusuf, worked with bronze, marble and testa, which is a limestone native to Lebanon. Today... Rashana is home to an open-air museum of Basbus sculptures and was recognized as the UNESCO site in 1997. This place looks like it was designed by Dr. Seuss and the Basbus brothers' home has this like loopy, bubbly feeling. They used to have sculpture symposiums there up until 2004 and sculptors would come in and work and just be inspired from each other. Michel's only child is also a sculptor. His name is Anashar. Rashana spelled backwards. The sculpture that was outside the old premises of Joe's agency, Grey Group, was sculpted by Michel Basfus. Now get this. Michel was taught sculpture at an early age by Yusuf Hwayik. Yusuf Hwayik was the same guy behind the original sculpture that sat in Martyr Square. It's now in the courtyard of the Sirsut Museum. It's the one with the two women holding the Phoenician urn. If you've been to the Sirsut Museum and you don't know what I'm talking about, don't feel bad. It's very possible you walked right by it and didn't even notice. It's outside the entrance, so next time you're there, make sure to look for it, because it's beautiful. Joe said he doesn't know what happened to this towering piece of a Phoenician woman. So obviously, I did a little digging, because I need to solve this mystery of this lost lady. I used to work in advertising, and Lebanon is a very small country. It is not that hard to track people down. So I start asking somebody that I know who now works at Gray, if they can ask someone at Gray, if they knew what happened. So then I get a phone number and I call some people. Anyway, it turns out the sculpture hasn't moved. It's still sitting outside the Mukhaibar Villa in Beit Mere, where it has been this entire time. But now it's part of a private collection. So when lockdown is over, I'm heading there first. And then I'm going to Rashana. 
So the agency, because the agency was in good financial shape, then we started up opening more offices and growing, getting more business. We were supposed, in fact, what I forgot to tell you is that we were supposed to sign a partnership with Gray Advertising on August the 7th. And Saddam went into Kuwait on August the 5th. So Gray said the project is on hold. Thank God it was placed on hold because they wanted to buy a majority and they were buying at a very low price mm. because we were still, you know, weak. So what happened is after that, uh, the business went very well. So we kept Gray uh, at bay for a couple of years. Then later, when they started insisting, let's do the deal, we said, okay, first we sell you a minority and we sell you at a price much higher than the price you were suggesting yeah. in those days. So, and that happened and agency grew. And the main account that was brought in by Gray to our agency was Procter & Gamble. And, you know, they have three agencies they use all over the world. Gray is one. Gray did not have a presence in the Middle East. Now they did. And now they placed Procter. And, you know, Procter is really a school, a school of marketing. P&G, or Procter & Gamble, is a huge American corporation. They have a really wide range of consumer goods. And this means that they are an amazing client when it comes to advertising because you have a ton of products that you can work on, so you have multi-accounts under one big main account. They also have a really strict way of doing things. They have a philosophy of marketing. And you learn these practices when you're working for P&G as a creative agency. I also used to work on P&G. And I know exactly what Joe is talking about. They have a very specific way of communicating and strategizing. And the lessons you learn from P&G can then be applied to products across the board. Products like wine. Thinking now about Lebanese wine in general and thinking of normally what should be put together for a product category, because I won't call it here a brand, I will call it a product category, which I'd call Lebanese wine. Mm-hmm. Lebanese wine is very small as a group. We, Lebanon only produces 10 million bottles a year, and only 5 million are exported. In fact, less than probably closer to 4 million are exported. So 4 million in the world, you know, the world produces 37 billion bottles. So 4 million out of 37 billion is nothing. But because I've done the research, and in fact, the, the 4 million bottles that Lebanon exports do not compete with the 37 billion produced. Because the 37 billion bottles produced, two-thirds, at least two-thirds of that, are local products sold locally to locals, who are people who never consider drinking anything but the wines of their country. So that's two-thirds of the production. So 24, mil, 24 billion are local. So 24 billion bottles we don't compete with. Yeah. We compete with 12 billion. Okay? So, okay, our 4 million are competing with 12 billion. But the 12 billion are in two categories. There are the, the brands that people ask for specifically and want to buy specifically. And there's a category which is, I think, a marketing uh, category that wine marketing should start using, which is first-time trialists. First-time okay. trialists are most of the people who try wines for the first time because either they're in a restaurant and they don't know any of the wines, but they say, I want the wine from this country, or they're facing the wine wall in a supermarket where there are hundreds of wines yeah. and they don't know what to buy. So. For whatever reason, they pick one bottle, and it's the first time they drink it, and probably will be the last time they drink it. Uh, So first-time trialists are normally, if I want to be very super conservative, it's 5% of the 12 billion. In fact, it's closer to 10. It's between 5 and 10. So we're talking about 1.2 to 3 million million bottles daily, because I, I bring back the number of bottles sold annually to daily, so that mm-hmm. we, we, we think in What more... would make a wine a first-time try wine? Like, what qualifies it as that? Oh, it, it, Just being qualifying. something that's not really 
It's, it's a line that the name. buyer doesn't know. Most buyers, most people consuming wine on a daily basis, some of them consume wines they know and they've tried, and yes, they, they bought them specifically. But very often, at least in 10% of cases, I'm saying, uh, people buy wines they've never heard of, they had never tried. And there are various reasons that go into their minds. In some countries, people say, oh, I've never tried a wine from Chinon, or I've never tried a wine from Bourgogne, Burgundy, I want to try it. Or, you know, people have different reasons, or I like the label, or mm -hmm. I like the name, or, you know, or I want something different. I've heard my friends tell me Chilean wines are fantastic. Some people who know a bit more will say, oh, I want from the Casablanca Valley, or yeah. each one has different motivations. But at the end, the wine business, and this is what wine marketers must take into account, have a huge component of the wine drinking, which happens haphazardly, first-time trialists. And you have to, therefore, in store in the minds of wine drinkers in general something special about Lebanese wine that will want them to at least once in their life try a Lebanese wine. Mm -hmm. There's no image or component or reason why for people to want to try Lebanese wine. People only so far try Lebanese wine when they're in Lebanese restaurants or Middle Eastern restaurants and the restaurateur normally has a few Lebanese wines on the list. But it's a pity to have Lebanese wines only limited to Lebanese restaurants and Lebanese cuisine. No, this is the thing I've been for the last seven years trying to find the right way of doing it. How to position Lebanese wine in general as a category in an easy way that's understandable and easy to communicate that doesn't require a big investment of advertising. Mm -hmm. No, but it's a reason that will make Lebanese wine special that every marketer, every brand can have as one sentence at the end of any of his advertising. So we're not asking them to change their advertising. No, but there's one component. If we can say Lebanese wine is so-and-so yeah. and the so-and-so is motivating, and we all do it all over the world. When yeah, we a unified talk, message. A unified message. What they're trying to do, and UVL, is not handled by marketing people. They, they don't consult with any agencies, do they? No! No! <laughs> no! UVL is the Union Vinicole du Liban, and it's the closest thing we have to a regulating body in Lebanon. Except they don't really set any regulatory rules when it comes to making wine. Most of their efforts are promotional, trying to push Lebanese wine abroad in trade shows. And they also do the Lebanese Wine Day, which is a day dedicated to Lebanese wine in a different city every year. They had an agency at their disposal, not the agency, but me. I tried to tell them this is what we should do. Everyone gives you excuses why this cannot be done. Fine. Why do you think they well, don't, I, I don't like no, to... No, I'm not trying to blame them. No, I, I'm only I trying to say, uh, well, I want to try to push it forward yeah. because it's a pity not to do it. Because we want Lebanese wine to be demanded, even if demanded only once by people. We only produce, we only export 4 million bottles. We have the potential to export 10 million bottles, two and a half times what we're producing today. When I said that to uh, somebody at UVL, they said, no, but we don't have the capacity. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. There are lots of empty plots of land that can do it. And we have something special in Lebanon. In order to produce what I was telling you about the combination of snow and sun, it means altitude vineyards. Mm -hmm. We should only uh, grow vines at altitude, 1,200 meters and above. The Bekaa Valley is 900, roughly, but it has to be more because you have to be cooler than 900 or 1,000. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, I'm at 13 and 1,400. You know the Chateau Canafar winery. My vineyards are... Right above them. Above, mm -hmm. in mountains. Okay, it was a risk. It was, it's harder. I've already broken a 4x4 four four and a pickup because there are yeah. no roads to get to my vineyards. We go through roads we have organized. Um, we broke two already. Now the three, the third one is being repaired as we speak. Wow. So, but it's worth it. 
It's worth it. And I've discovered up there old vineyards. The, the Sasso, mm-hmm. my Sasso, uh, it's a 32-year-old uh, vine planted by an old man who got too old, couldn't care for his uh, vines. He had neglected them for a year. I went, talked to him, made a deal with him. Now we've totally refixed. According to Michael Karam, I'm not saying. Mm-hmm. He said, this is the best I saw of Lebanon. So, okay. <laughs> In front of lots of people. Uh, Turel. Uh, Fauzi. Fauzi was sitting there. So, so, so one of the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael looked at Fauzi and said, yeah, yeah, one of the best. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, I mean, yes, Fauzi does, especially his 17 is very good. Uh, so Fauzi makes fantastic Saiso. We make a very good Saiso. Uh, Vertical 33 mm-hmm. makes a very good, one of the two. I like the Saiso du Soir. There's something in Saiso. Michael Karam is a wine writer, and Fauzi Aisa is the winemaker at Domaine de Turel. And one of the wines that they're very well known for is their 100% Senso. So that's why that story is a little funny. In the 19th century, Lebanon's first and oldest winery, Chateau Xara, brought over Senso from Algeria, which was a French colony at the time. Senso is technically a French grape, isn't it? Hervé Lalo, uh, who's a French wine historian and blogger and writer, who was here for Horeca last year, who came and tasted uh, our Sanso, he said, Joe, I have a theory, which is that Sanso was probably uh, originating from the Eastern Mediterranean, and it's the Phoenicians who took it to France back in the old days, and it became a French varietal. But it could well be now, oh. okay? Some people are doing uh, DNA tests. Mm-hmm. We'll find out whether this is true or not. Some people say, no, no, it's impossible. But anyway, the fact is that Sanso in Lebanon gives better results in wine than the Sanso in France, in the south of France. So at least there's something positive. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a bit like the Malbec story in Argentina. Yeah. Why did Argentina become so famous? Altitude and Malbec. We have altitude, we have Sanso, and we probably have others. Probably it's also mm. Grenache or Bouvedre or, or even Cabernet. You don't know. But we have to work on it to make something become a solid argument that we can put forward and for people all over the world to at least try Lebanese wine once and to put us more strongly on the map. The second pillar is when you do positioning, when you want to sell, this is what I learned from Procter & Gamble. You have to have a reason why for the people to try your product. And the rule number one in marketing, trial, trial, trial. This is where you can generate a base. You want to have people try your product. And for people to try your product, you have to give them a reason. And it has to be a convincing reason. And it has to be a reason that they're looking for that they have, haven't found in other wines. If you can fill that gap, this is the second pillar. And this is why I say Lebanese wine has to have a positioning, a global positioning, which should be strong and easy to communicate, which does not require to, have to fund a campaign. No, 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 I don't want to fund a campaign. I want to have an argument that everybody can use in their sales strategy, whatever their sales strategy Yeah, is. and it works for everybody. It's not exactly. going to favor anybody. Exactly. Yeah. This is what I want to do. And this is what I think is going to take Lebanese wine somewhere in the world. Because we're, we're probably one the smallest producer in the world. Uh, nobody pr- produces uh, less than 10 million bottles a year. And we produce such good quality in those 10 million bottles that it's a pity not to be classified somewhere in the world as, oh yeah, Lebanese wine is so-and-so, should be tried at least once. People do that, do that for Chilean wine, they do that for Argentinian Malbec, they do that for uh, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. They, they want to try the Retsina from Greece, they want to try, you know, they want to try the Armenian uh, wine in Amphoras. Yeah, why don't they want to try the Lebanese wine for whatever reason? We have to give them a reason. The rule is positioning. We have to position Lebanese wine. And this is what the second pillar, Procter & Gamble. 
The third one is OIV, which took me to countless countries around the world where you see what problems they have and what solutions they bring. And you understand that we all have something in common. All the people, uh, all the winemakers love nature, love the products they do, and they all are trying to give pleasure. Wine is a product of pleasure. It's nothing else you want to get. But pleasure alone is not enough. Pleasure you forget. But when it's, in order for pleasure to be distinctive, it has to have pleasure and elegance. Elegance, in fact, is what turned fashion into art. It's what turned music into art. Because when it's elegant, you remember it, and every time you hear it back, you enjoy it again. Yeah, it creates a memory. So, and it's repeatable. So, we have repeatability in Lebanese wine. So, it has to be, we have to put together this, you know, because once the component is put in place, everybody will be pushing to maximize that component, whether it's the combination of freshness and uh, maturity or if something even more specific. But it ends up, this is work in progress in my mind. Mm-hmm. I still, although I've been thinking about it for seven years, I haven't yet found what it is that will take Lebanese wine. I, but I have to admit, I have one a brand ambassador in mind who would be ideal, would represent this elegance and this fantastic combination. There's one person in the world today who can be, I'm talking now simply in terms of conceptually, so that yeah. you understand what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm curious. Mrs. Clooney. <laughs> Amal. Amal, you know. The substance, yeah. the elegance, the strength, and the the, the aura. My God, this, I mean, this is what a reflection of that we want to try to achieve in Lebanese. Yeah. But but Amal Clooney, Amal Alamuddin is absolutely what represents what Lebanon wine should be. Okay, she's much more than that. But so, That's a good example, though, yeah. as far as what yeah. to aim for as an yeah. image. Yeah. Like when they say, if your product was a person. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So it has helped being, having been in advertising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes into play no matter what you end up doing. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a good way to navigate business. So at this point, Joe and I have been talking for a while. And I realized that we haven't really talked about terroir. We've just been talking about wine and Lebanon and Sanso, which obviously is great. But what's the story of the brand? The story of the brand is in this picture. Yeah. This picture, this is TJ and me in Napa Valley doing tastings back in 2009 when I was taking one of the courses of uh, OIV, the one in California. Uh, Which winery is that? This one was uh, Silver Oaks. Mm, nice. And in fact, we took a bottle of '83, uh, the year Tariq was born. Uh, he took it. He kept it at home. Uh, so we were there. He was working for Microsoft. He was in uh, Seattle. Uh, I was in California, so he flew down. We. We went and visited because, you know, I had been taking the course, so I knew a lot of the wineries. So we were well received everywhere. We went and saw seven or eight wineries. And he was very interested in wine. He was reading already wine magazines. And he said, Dad, I'll help you. Come on, go ahead. He was the one who tried my first wine. The first one I made as a hobby with George Naim, which was the 2011, Mm -hmm. of which only one bottle is left right here. I only have one left, okay? And uh, he had tried it and said, Dad, you're doing it right. Yalla, proceed. That was in December of 11, so the wine was just finished. He passed away in February of 12, so, okay. I'm sorry. Didn't see. And this is why I called the wine TJ. TJ are his initials, and we used to call him TJ. Terjoie is the land of joy. Uh, the land of joy is a good descriptor of what the product is and the country is. And uh, Terjoie is also a translation of my family name in Arabic mm-hmm. because Saadi, okay, it's, it's 
happiness, not joy, but joy and happiness can be somewhat similar. So this is the story of the brand. This is why uh, in 2012, I decided to call the brand TJ, Terjois. We hadn't yet become commercial. We only, the first commercial wine we produced was 2013. I didn't produce in 12, 12 we were too busy doing other things. Uh, I sold the wine, the grapes that year, but 13 was, we made our first Fleur 13, which was amazing, and then we continued. So it was called TJ, Tarjois, because of Tariq. He was one of the key guys at Microsoft in internet security mm. and uh, anti-malware, and he was very much into, you know, uh, all the things. He was even involved in funny things that were happening. Yeah, all over the world for malware and all that. He had this uh, diving accident in February of 2012. And so he continues to inspire the wine. Uh, it will always be called TJ. Fleur is his handle on the internet. So And he used to write it capital, a combination mm -hmm. of capitals and uh, small. Uh, and then... Then we decided last year to produce a second wine, a second red, and we called it SDF. SDF is Sœur de Fleur, sister of Fleur, because Yasmin, sister, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to keep her out. Why only Fleur? <laughs> Why only Fleur? So she got married three years ago and now she, uh, we have a, a grandson, so a few months old. So the grandson now is my biggest reason to go to Dubai. So we started with labels that were, you know, that had the TJ, which is, uh, he used to be very interested in uh, doing uh, graphics for uh, street, uh, mm -hmm. you call it? Uh, graffiti. Graffiti. So then this year, I decided to add an illustration. So the friend of ours, Colette Turani Dutois, Colette Turani is an old, old friend. When we were living in Cyprus, she was also in Cyprus. And Colette is Lebanese, but she became Cypriot, and she's married to a South African, so she became wow. South African. So she has the three, the three uh, continents that <laughs> are, you know. So and she started uh, painting recently, maybe two or three years ago. She started painting. I love her painting. I said, Colette, as a favor, do me some with a bottle of wine or a glass of wine in them. So she made the whole series. And most of them are in the wine, in our tasting room, in the winery. We have her art. Was it planned that you were going to use it like that? or No, no, just I like... just liked it. And, you know, I like them and it's, I like art. And I decided to make, include her art in our, uh, on our labels. Throughout the interview, I'm thinking about Joe's blog. And I'm thinking about all the ideas I read in that blog. And now I know his background and his history in advertising. So I'm thinking, what are your ideas for the future? Okay, I have already 50% more space, either that I've already acquired or that I can acquire uh, land at in altitude to increase in on top to continue doing this. I can, you know, today, this year, we'll produce 30,000 bottles. I can take this up to 45,000, but this is still very small. But if Lebanese wine does not have a place in the world that becomes really a demanded product category, it's not worth going further than 45,000 mm -hmm. for me. Because for me, the 45,000, I can sell them all at export or half and half, because the young generation of Lebanese people love Lebanese wine in general, and our wine in particular. Every single person under 40 trying our wine is loving it. So fine, we're doing something right. There will be more potential than there had been in the past. So I have two plans. The one is to stop at 45 and being either uh, niche, niche export, okay, niche export oriented, for people looking for a special experience from a funny place in the world. And there is such a, a such a niche exists. Or if we want to go bigger, if Lebanese understand that hashishi is not the only, you know, great product <laughs> that 
gives you added value product you can export. Wine can be one. And I have a plan now. And I'm in fact started discussing with the people who own the land. Okay. I'm talking about a million to a million and a half square meters of land, which are all at 1200 and above altitude. And I found also the location for the winery for this wine, because this is not in the Beka. This is, we're talking in the mountains or in Mount Lebanon, not uh, in the Beka. We're hoping to, uh, I mean, uh, so I found, I found an old convent which is now not a convent anymore, with caves and with um, the ideal winery there. And it's not too far from this, so it's Kisirwan. The other one can be either Jbel and Kisirwan. Uh, mm -hmm. you, can, you can do something. I already have a plot myself. You know Jabal Musa? Yeah. Okay, Jabal Musa. I have there uh, sponsored a forest in the name of Tariq, TJ, the TJ forest in Jabal Musa, okay? And because I have friends from that region, I've taken a plot of land which is just contingent to Jabal Musa. Okay. Okay, which had an old house that I was hoping to be able to rebuild, okay? And to make a place where people, friends of Tariq coming to visit Jabal Musa and visit the forest, can come here and taste wine. So it's a big plot, it's 50,000 square meters, it's, uh, and it's, at the end is a river, uh, Nahr al-Dahab, and then Jabal Musa. So mm -hmm. I'm just contingent to Jabal Musa. And uh, again, the idea started there, and this is where I got involved into saying, hey, this can be taken further. If Lebanese wine can really have a place in the world, then maybe we can contribute to doubling or tripling mm -hmm. the size. Because when you compare to what the Cypriots or the Israelis or even the Greeks are doing, we're not doing uh, half of what we should do. And we have better wine than the, uh, my friends in Cyprus. Cyprus have very good white wines. They haven't reached yet the good quality of red wines for whatever reasons. But we have the potential because Lebanon has been exposed, you know, we've got the Phoenicians who are international traders, okay? Then we had the Crusaders, which brought us the French influence and the French, you know, drinking demand. <laughs> and then we had the Gaulle who, you know, made a mandate and, uh, and brought in the French army who was consuming Lebanese wine. And this is how Musar started and this is how the whole industry was reborn. So. We have the French influence, which the Israelis or the Cypriots don't have, and which can be a positive thing in the world of wine, uh, because these guys have learned more about how to make good wines and how to sell good wines in the world than anybody else. Yeah, no, we have a great story. Yeah. So we have a great <laughs> story. So that's, again, future plan. So future plan is either increase our production by 50%, and still continue focusing only on quality. We don't make an entry-level wine, although uh, the market tells us we should, to be able to cover our costs, we should have something that will sell in volume. Yeah. But to do that means making compromises on quality, mixing things that you normally won't mix in wine you want to be proud of. But I don't know if I'll ever get into that. I will try to avoid it. But <laughs> Nobody seems to want to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, two weeks ago, I got a phone call from a huge wine retailer in the UK saying, I'm selling, I want one Lebanese, very special Lebanese wine that I will sell online, which will sell in three weeks. Give me 5,000 bottles. I want to be able to retail them for eight to nine pounds. Ouch. So if they want to retail it to eight to nine pounds, what is my ex-seller yeah. uh, price? Five pounds, five, six, seven dollars. The bottle and the cork and the cap cost me two and a half dollars. Yeah, what are you putting in and that? And the grapes, another two dollars. <laughs> so that's four and a half dollars. We haven't done anything yet. You haven't used uh, uh, an oak barrel is a dollar per bottle if you want to spend one year in 
half new uh, versions. So it's yeah, there's not a lot of room there to make something worth drinking, and you don't want to infect people. If you do it in big volume with high quality assurance, yeah, it can be done. But this entails having three or four of the small boutique wineries together yeah. produce one brand. We tried the the concept. Not everybody likes it. We're talking to friends. If you know the four or five of us together try to make one mm. entry level wine, which we'll all share. What brand will it be? What can each one sell it under his brand? Yes, at at that price. Why not? There are creative solutions, but it takes a few key, but boutique players, but key ones. Some people you can really try to do something yeah. with. Uh, we'll try. We'll try. Could that ever backfire, though, having uh, entry-level wine? Like, it has to be good, because you don't want to risk yeah, yeah. people trying it and thinking that that's what Lebanon is at the, you know, at the cost of the quality. That's right. This is why it has to be done by four people pulling together. Good wines they, they have, but they don't want to use for whatever right. reason. For instance, I have two vineyards of Syrah, which produce fantastic Syrah. I've been selling them every year because... Just no capacity. No, I have no place for Syrah in my Mm. plan. Originally, I started Syrah just, uh, again, whatever reason. I did want to ask about the white Grenache. I saw that somewhere. White Grenache? I don't have any white Grenache. Yeah, you don't, but you were considering making a white wine with the Grenache. Yeah, I have. I will be not Grenache. I have uh, planted three years ago. This year, in 2020, I will make my first white wine. And my white wine will be a Lebanese white wine that I like. Okay. Okay. I I don't like Chardonnay myself. I find it too buttery and too easy. I like Sauvignon Blanc. Although Sauvignon Blanc is a bit aggressive and, uh, you know, the minerality, the acidity, the the multi-fruitiness... I love it. This is what I personally like in white wine. So yes, I have planted 3,000 vines of Sauvignon Blanc and I'm planning to plant 6,000 more. But I planted these and I'm waiting for them this year. Mm -hmm. But to give this wine a Lebanese identity and to kind of make a nice touch on top of the minerality and acidity of Sauvignon Blanc, I have decided I will prob- I will mix it, I will blend it with Obaidi. Obaidi is a very nice white crepe. It's a bit too subtle for me, for mm-hmm. my taste to be on its own. But the subtlety will add something to Sauvignon Blanc, I think. But probably yeah. in low quantities. Yeah, sure. Because it's it's quite uh, 20 per- creamy. 15, 15 to so, 20% yeah. uh, of uh, Abedi with 80 to 85% uh, okay. Sauvignon Blanc. And the Sauvignon Blanc I've planted is at 1,400 meters. So okay. the, the altitude and the coolness is essential for mm-hmm. good Sauvignon Blanc. So let's see. We'll know this year. Do you know what you're going to call that one? Yeah, Sauvignon Mignon? Mignon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sauvignon, one word. <laughs> so, yes, I'll call it Sauvignon. That's cute. Yeah, it's Sauvignon, but with Arbeidi, so it's Sauvignon. <laughs> I like it. You have a lot of plans. Yes. Like, there's a lot going uh, on. I hope I have the health and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Did you think that it was going to be this kind of project when you walked into it? Like yes. you were going to be working on so many different yes. things at the same time? Like yes. that was the plan? Yes, that was the plan. <laughs> now, if you're coming from advertising, from, you, know, you know that you're not doing something just as a hobby. You're doing it because you want to make a difference. Yeah. I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference alone. I want to contribute to making a difference. But we should make a difference. There's no future for Lebanese wine if we don't make a difference, and we will. Even if I do it alone, and the others will only uh, understand it much later, fine, but I'll do it. If I can't apply it on a global industry, I'll apply it for my brand and let them see the results and try to... Let it speak for itself. (sighs) I know that was a long one, but thank you so much for listening to the whole thing. If you have anything you want to tell me or some feedback or some questions shoot me an email at info at b4bacchus.com. That's info at b4bacchus.com.
If you like the podcast, please rate and review it. It really helps people discover it. And then we have more people learning about the region and about the wine that we're producing here. I'd like to thank Odile at Grave for helping me track down that sculpture. I'm still going to go check it out at some point and I will share pictures on Instagram. Make sure to follow the account. Until then, stay safe, everybody. This is Farah signing off for the Be For Backers podcast. Thank you.